in the darkest worlds that ever were. The only thing that brings light are stories. Those stories are kept in one place. The tiny bookcase. Hello, explorers of the Sacred Library. You're listening to The Tiny Bookcase. I'm Ben. I'm Nico, and we've some more tales for you. Cracking yarns. We're joined today by someone who's described by the scrolls as a horror writer, while also being the creator and executive producer of the Nightlight podcast. We would like to welcome Tanya Ransom. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. That's quite all right. How has the uh, pandemic been where you are? Um, crazy. I am in Texas. I'm in Austin, so it's not as bad here as it is in other parts of Texas. But, I mean, pretty much every other part of Texas has just been wild and out not doing what they're supposed to do. <laughs> so, it's been kind of bad here. Have you lived in Austin for a long time? Uh, yeah, I've lived here for 21 years. My understanding is that there's been a recent influx of Californians to yes, Texas. Yes, and they're driving up our real estate prices, which really? is great if you want to sell, but not yeah. if you want to buy. <laughs> so it's actually really noticeable, is it? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Whew. And uh, a lot of very famous podcasters as well, which is how I heard about it, obviously, because uh, Rogan moved, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He moved um, at the right at the start of the pandemic, I think, mm -hmm. last year. Um yeah, there's a great podcasting community here. You know, now it's been, you know, all the meetups have been closed down for a year. And so we're all kind of like doing our own thing. But, you know, I'm hoping by the summer or the fall, we'll be able to start getting back together and hanging out with each other. There's a lot of really great podcasters here. Oh, that's going to be stunning. Yeah, the, the uh, restrictions are only just starting to relax a bit in the UK. Um, yeah, well, our restrictions, they lifted them all, even the mask wearing. They were like, do what you want. <laughs> yeah and my sister's an icu nurse so of course like you know when they announced that she was like jesus christ like really <laughs> you know you know because i mean that's her job is taking care of covid patients so yeah. when people are doing what they're not supposed to be doing her job gets harder yeah and i i assume she's got lots of uh, fairly grim tales of oh yeah what it's like yeah. on the ward. Mm -hmm. um, it's been a, it's been a hell of a time hasn't it um, yeah yeah it's been a really rough time for her Really, especially at the beginning, um, you know, when we didn't really know what we were dealing with. Um, she lived with my mom, but she was scared she was going to get my mom sick. So she went and stayed in a hotel for a while and then eventually found a place to rent. Um, so she wouldn't be, you know, coming home to my mom Crazy. every day. So she was isolated. You know, she didn't, you know, have any contact with any of us, you know, in person. You know, we texted and talked on the phone and video chatted and things. But, you know, that's not the same. Um, no. So it was it was really difficult for her in the beginning. And, you know, for me, too, you know, not not as much as it was for her, I'm sure. But, you know, I, she's my little sister and you know, I wanted to make it all better for her. And that's not something that I could make better. And, you know, it was, it was really tough seeing her suffer and not being able to do anything to help. That's horrible. It's absolutely <laughs> horrible. Yeah. 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 I did hear the occasional story from in the UK where nurses were you know, parked up in RVs outside their house. So yeah. So they could isolate and stuff like that. Um, yeah, like she had a couple of friends that did that. Right, as yeah. Well. It's, uh, yeah, it, the whole thing's been utterly, utterly awful. But um, have you found that it's affected your own 
your own work because obviously you're a you're a, a creator and producer of a podcast and you're also a writer yeah um so yeah the pandemic started i got um i separated from my husband september of 2019 wow right um, before wow okay. <laughs> right before <laughs> And, you know, moved into my own place, you know, adjusting to being a single mom and all of that entails. Um, I was teaching at a school. Unfortunately, I was teaching with my former best friend who is now married to my ex-husband. So you can connect the pieces oh, there. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, Wildest so, yeah. episode we've ever done and we haven't even got to the <laughs> stories. <laughs> I feel like maybe I should have like withheld these stories so my actual story like won't sound like crap because yeah this is much merrier much more um much better story fodder I think than anything that I could have come up with but um but yeah so I kind of got pushed out of my job and oh, um you know I was adjusting to being a single mom and you know so I mean obviously like a lot of stress like incredibly stressed out before the the pandemic even started um, and I ended up quitting my job a week before the lockdown here. You know, I, I didn't know it was coming. You know, I'd heard something about COVID and, you know, just kind of shrugged it off or thought, okay, well, it's, you know, it's not going to be a big deal. You know, they, everything else that's happened in China or Africa, you know, has been contained. Um, even if it got over here in the United States, you know, it's, it's not something we've ever had to really worry about it. So I, I just kind of thought that things would be the same and, you know, didn't even consider that, you know, maybe I shouldn't quit my job, <laughs> um, you know, because I had enough money for a little bit. But, um, you know, when everything shut down, lots of people lost their work. And so everyone was looking for work. And so I couldn't find a job. And so I was like, well, I got my podcast. I might as well just put all of my time and attention into that. <laughs> and um, so it actually worked out really well for the podcast, like once, you know, I got through the point where I wasn't so stressed out that I could actually work. Cause you know, for a while it was just, you know, one, I was focused on looking for a job and I wasn't thinking about the podcast at all. But then also, you know, like the incredible amount of stress that I was under, I just did not feel creative in any shape, way, form or fashion. So, um, you know, I kind of put it to the side for a while, but you know, eventually things started to calm down a little bit and I started to put all my energy into the podcast and writing and so things are going pretty well i'm very glad to hear that especially after everything you've uh, you went through at the end of uh, 2019 and start of 20 that sounds yeah really really tough yeah it was would not recommend it <laughs> so that was a story that none of us could have written so let's see exactly. if any of us can can match the madness that is real life <laughs> right people keep I telling me i should write a movie about it and you know i think you know what that, that's not a bad idea <laughs> We already cry at films. We'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, let's have some of our written stories. They're gonna be sad now, and it's gonna, it's not gonna help. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> be miserable. This is why you come here. So, right. uh, I'm gonna make Ben go first this time because I'm saying this bit, so I get to choose. <laughs> you just, <laughs> uh, and your story, oh, all of our stories this week will be to the prompt. Family recipe. Cool. Uh, right. So, are you okay with the way that we introduced you there, Tonya? Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Uh, and I did I get your name correct? Was it Tonya Ransom? Yeah, just as it. Yeah, you got it right. Have it. Cool. Um, I, I have a I have a bad habit of mispronouncing names. So. Me too. It's to... okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Okay. Not me. I'm perfect. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love you guys. <laughs> Family recipe. The first emotion is always grief. That cold shock like you're drowning in old bath water and someone has tossed a toaster in to warm you up. Whatever comes next is a gamble and no bookies will take the spread. It depends heavily on a few questions. Who died? Who were they to you? And what was the last thing you said to them? The first one's a big one, so we'd best come back to it. Who were they to you tends to be a little easier, but still kind of difficult. So let's start with the end. What was the last thing I said to her? Thank you. I was alone with her just after she'd passed. In the end, she died the way that she did everything, on her own terms and carrying pain. The others had left the room, needing some space and time. The words rose out of me, unlooked for, and I realised I meant them, even for the bad times. Thank you. Who was she to me? Well, people can be anything to anyone. You hear stories about Nazis being good dads or humanitarian relief workers accidentally running over prams at intersections. In this case, she was family before I understood the meaning of the word. The woman of the family. Spoken of by her daughters as somewhere between a blood-soaked berserker and a shrewd ruler deftly capable of withering statecraft. Anything nurturing from her came in the form of action. I'd been told that when I was a small baby, that I'd managed to pull a boiling kettle down onto myself. As the first of the next generation, you tend to take the knocks. In the absence of action from her daughters, she won the day with her quick wits and quick hands, and I have no scars on me from that day. There are other stories like that, but they all say the same thing. She was someone that would always act and often got it right. So you see, it was from before I knew what family was that she had already played a big role in my life. Let's go back to that first question. Who was she? You can dig and dig into someone's life long after they're dead, and perhaps you won't ever still get the right answer to this question. She was someone who'd been fucked over by her own family. Her mother and father had lived large in India before the war. Her mother had passed time with cavalry captains, and her father had drunk his way to his emotions despite his keen mind. The inevitable paternal abandonment had occurred, and she'd been returned to England by ship after boarding for school in Rajasthan, the land of kings. With just her siblings and her mother, who was thought of as another savage bitch by many, she was thrust into the post-war rural poverty of northern England. Her mother, used to regimental dances and servants, found herself locking the front door of their two-up, two-down, when she left her children sleeping alone at night to go to work. Unable to access university from her situation, despite inheriting her father's mind, she added it to the chips on her shoulder. Instead, she found the kindest man she could and loved him. They had children, and she dominated their lives with her unyielding personality, and made all the mistakes people do when they haven't worked through their trauma. Her kids grew up, and as they did, she fought with them bitterly, whilst desperately staying as deeply embedded in their lives as she could. The cycle repeated with her children's children, starting with me, before it was cut short. But these are just the things that happened to her. Who was she? She was hard. Harder than someone can be and still be nice. Capricious like a riptide, people would often find themselves drowning when her mood shifted impossibly fast. Nice does not mean good, though, and she was good. 
principled, able to move with the times, and capable of intense love for anyone, especially her family. That love could feel like a warming sun soaking into your bones on the beach, but it made the cold clutch of her tempestuous sea smart all the worse when the tide turned. Years after that initial cold shock, long after you've stopped thinking about the person that died every day, they will pop up in your mind larger than they were in life. Olfactory triggers, like a brand of perfume or a favoured flower, can precipitate it. Or certain situations, like a particular time of year or a family gathering. For me, it was a flapjack recipe written in her cursive. That delicious smell of roasted oats mixed with gilded syrup and rich butter, done just the way she used to do it and left a cool on the side. My words came back to me. Thank you, I said aloud and smiled. So I know that at least one part of that is true. Because you've, even on the podcast, have talked about the kettle before. Mm, yeah. How much of this is based in you? That's all true. Yeah, oh, wow. then then I know why I feel as emotionally weighted as I do right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was like after you stopped reading, I was like, I should say something, but God, I don't know what to say because that was, I mean, so many feels, so much grief, you know. Um, I lost my cousin two months ago on the 1st. And, you know, so like there's been a lot of grief that I've been dealing with with that and you know like i don't know just the way that this was like so quiet and i'm trying to find the word that i'm looking for it, it very much honoring someone is what i felt and like i didn't want to say anything because like i felt like you know it was definitely rooted in reality i just didn't know how much hmm. was a real experience and so i was like oh i don't want to say anything like wrong <laughs> you know but okay. I feel like I need to say something, but I also felt like I needed like a moment of silence too, if that makes sense. Well, I'm glad that came came through. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah, sure. at, the, at, at the end of the day, it is it is still a story, despite the fact that it's uh, you know it's all it's all written from life or yeah, yeah. So, so I think it can be it can be dissected and all that kind of that kind of business, really. Um, but yeah, I uh, I actually um, there's a question we ask on this podcast, which is like when was the last time you uh, cried whilst reading? And we'll ask it to you later on. Um, spoilers. Uh, <laughs> but I actually uh, just could not, I started to write this and I just could not stop crying. And it was, it was like this tremendous, like beautiful bit of catharsis, which I think is why it's so short. Like it's, it's easily the shortest thing I've ever written for this podcast. Um, and it just, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, um, this this is obviously about my, my grandmother and she died years and years ago, as it says at the end. And for whatever <clears> reason, just sort of turning it into a story really sort of cut through to it. Um, but I sort of wanted it to be quite uplifting because it's like, because obviously she she had, and as, as we know from the story, like she had a very difficult life and she was a very difficult person. Um, but for whatever reason, like this, like this idea of like thanking someone for even the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. With what was up, what really sort of tip, sort of tipped me over, really. Um, yeah, I'd say so, in terms of length, it's because you avoided gilding the lily. That's a hard phrase to say. Gilding <laughs> the lily. Um, but yeah, you 
it was a very well observed and I don't want to say factual because it's not what I mean, but it's very difficult to write about grief in its moment. Mm -hmm. And being able to look back on it and it still stir emotion in yourself without you needing to be flowery and without you needing to turn it into something bigger than it is, which is quite an important thing because grief, when it happens to you, is the biggest thing you can possibly imagine. Mm, but in yeah. the grand scheme of like the narrative of life, it's only the biggest thing that's happened to the person you're grieving for. Yes. Yeah, that's so very true. I, I think you did it a service by keeping it. Yeah. The length you did. You you said what you needed to say. Well, yeah, thank you. Um I was actually intending for it to be a, a, a very nice story that was all that was all happy, but it just sort of didn't come out particularly. Um Well, particularly... I think in its own way it's happy. I mean it's hmm. It, it you know it's about a sad subject yes but you can definitely feel the catharsis and the healing and the beauty of those emotions even if they are you know quote unquote bad emotions there's still beauty in them mm. and i think you convey that really well thank you so yeah i uh, unfortunately didn't have it didn't necessarily uh it wasn't a bouncy one after after the uh, after the podcast intro but um it's uh yeah it was it was um certainly a new angle for me to write for, from in this uh in this podcast i really liked it man i really did yeah it was, it was really good yeah but sonia tell me you wrote something fucking happy <laughs> <laughs> you guys should not have picked a horror writer <laughs> oh my god what does this happen every time <laughs> oh that was your first mistake you got a horror writer <laughs> Your second mistake was that you got me as a horror writer, and I don't write happy things. <laughs> I mean, happy things happen, I suppose, but um, I, I mean, it's it's happy in its own way, I suppose. I, I, we'll see. We'll see what you guys think. Well, go on then. Show us. When I die, you'll be the next to receive the family recipe. Promise me. You'll honor it, she said, gasping for breath. Those were my mother's last words to me. Not, I love you, or it'll be okay. Just checking with me to make sure I understood that I would be responsible for the family recipe in the coming hours. Making sure that I would carry on our legacy. That's how important that little slip of paper is to my kin. More important than motherly love or reassurance. More important than the very air we breathe. The location and code to the box were in my mother's will. Only I was allowed to see it. She didn't even hire a lawyer to write up the document. She did one of those self-service templates to ensure our secret was safe. As instructed, I burned the paper with the sensitive information when I was done. I was now, well and truly, our family's keeper. I sat beside my mother's body, a shell of what she once was, and carefully dialed the right numbers that would open the box that held the sacred knowledge that had been passed down for at least a dozen generations. As I expected, there was an envelope inside that contained our family's secret. In my mother's careful handwriting, it read simply, Recipe. 
But there was more in the box. Teeth. Lots of them. And a blade, sharp and gleaming. Beneath that, a piece of paper. An inventory list. This box contains the following. Number one, teeth of your ancestors. Number two, the family blade. Number three, the family recipe. I understood the blade. The special meal we always served after funerals was meat, thinly sliced, expertly seasoned and roasted. Looking forward to that meal had always taken the sting out of losing a loved one. We'd sit in a pew and cry, barely able to see the urn at the front of the church through our tears, our mouths watering for that comforting taste we'd come to associate with grief and togetherness. I did not understand the teeth. I hoped what was in the envelope would clear that up for me. I considered using the blade to open the envelope, but decided against it. It seemed blasphemous somehow to use something so special on paper. Plus, I'd heard somewhere that paper dulls blades quickly. I stepped away from my mother's corpse to find a letter opener, returned to her, and slid the blade in, carefully opening the envelope. Inside was a slip of paper, yellowed, ink faded, but traced over carefully to ensure the recipe wouldn't be lost to time. There was also a letter, far more recent. The paper was still white and crisp. I unfolded it to reveal my mother's handwriting. Dear daughter, I am sorry to say that it is now your duty to safeguard this recipe and to prepare our family's funeral feasts. Sorry? I wondered, but continued reading. As you know, this recipe is not to be revealed to anyone until you pass on at which time you will leave this box to a female relative younger than you, but the oldest of our clan. You are probably wondering about the teeth. What you must do now will not be pleasant, but it must be done. If you do not carry out this task, our family will perish. Everyone. It's part of a deal made long ago. Long before you or I were born. Long before this country even existed. I'm sorry, but you do not have a choice. The first thing you'll need to do is remove one of my molars. A pair of pliers works great for this, but you will need to apply a great deal of force. Place that molar in this box. Then you will take the blade and flay the flesh from my body. I dropped the letter, looked at my mother, at peace at last, my own heart hammering hard enough for the both of us. I bent over to retrieve the page with shaky hands. Everyone has their own method for this. I researched how to field dress a deer to learn, but there is no right or wrong way, so long as you get as much meat from my bones as possible. You're a nurse, so your anatomy knowledge will be useful for this step, thankfully. You won't struggle as much as I did my first time. Once you have the meat, follow the recipe to the letter. Measure carefully. It's imperative that you are exact. Set a timer on the oven. Again, Our family's existence depends upon your ability to prepare me properly. I am truly sorry it had to be you. I love you with my entire soul and being. Mom. I looked again at my mom, grabbed the blade, and smiled. She wasn't as good at keeping secrets as she thought she was. I'd been waiting for this day for a long time. (sighs) I, uh, I really enjoyed that. Uh, it's especially good at that particular trick of um, leading the audience to the knowledge that they that they that they hope that they aren't right about. Yes, because yeah. uh, because I, I actually about halfway through I wrote down cannibal. 
<laughs> with a question mark at the end of it um and it was yeah and you sort of that perfect horror thing of just being like i really don't want to be right about this <laughs> you know, um, i'm just gonna the marked difference between the two of us ben you wrote down the word cannibal question mark and i out loud luckily my mic was muted said they're gonna eat the fucking mum that's the difference between us two yeah well when i was writing it i knew that i wanted it to be a cannibal story and Mm. i thought it's gonna be obvious like you know if if i write this well people are gonna piece it together like people are smart so i was like i need like some other twisty thing to happen because i'm a huge fan of the twilight zone and i love twist endings and so i was like what else can i do in this story that they don't see coming, you know, because they're going to see the cannibalism coming. So that's why, you know, at the end, she's all happy. So, you know, there, there's your happy ending, I guess. <laughs> that's my happy ending. I like it. Oh, and we both, oh, we both went with the death of a, of a close family member as well. Yeah. We are, we, are, we are really lightening up people's day when they listen to this one, aren't we? Right. It's going to be great. I, I, like, um, I like stories that have, that center around... Uh, like um, family dynamics that involve matrilineal knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about it that just makes a lot of sense. I think. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 cool to see it in in a in a more sort of modern modern story for sure. Yeah, um, and I, I really like playing with like intergenerational trauma, yeah, kind of thing. So like these things, you know, you know, sins of the father and, and that sort of thing is something I really like to explore in my writing is, you know, you kind of get handed down some things that you don't necessarily want (laughs) to have received, you know, but you have to deal with it anyway. And everyone has those things, you know, some are more burdensome than others, but you know, we all inherit some sins from our mothers and our fathers that Mm. we have to cope with in some way. The implication in there of there being a greater sort of dark power going on, was mm-hmm. really neatly slid in in a way that your brain went oh this is for satan cthulhu whoever <laughs> right. i don't have time to worry about that right now because <laughs> something worse is happening in the immediate room <laughs> right that, i really, really thought nice. about adding a scene with her like flaying the flesh from her mother but then i was like no like i kind of wanted it to be quiet and less gruesome and more of like an imagined gruesome I think yeah. I, I think that's often more effective than you know laying it all out there. Definitely, uh, you know, show don't tell sort of storytelling, which, yeah. is, which is always it's just neater and more elegant. Um, I mean, having said that, I do I do enjoy a good gory scene. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, I think you possibly made the right choice there. I, just on the um, this like idea of like a, an evil that's behind it all, that you know that definitely is suffused, and also the but the possibility that. Um, that there isn't you know that's just you know it's it's a superstition yes yeah, superstition because yeah. it's from before it's before the nation was even existent yeah um so this could be just like a really old superstition rooted in nothing right uh, they're american though ben to us that's recent it's it's, it's still a really <laughs> still a really long time yeah um, and uh yeah i mean if, if you think about like the state of religion and stuff just before um america got its independence and stuff like there's all kinds of weird stuff coming out of that um mm-hmm. so yeah no i thought it was and, and the, my point there is that that's also scary that 
there's just been generations after generations of some really weird shit happening for, for yeah. possibly <laughs> no reason. Um, very, very spooky. Very, uh, very. Yeah, that 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 tickled me in all the right ways. Really thoroughly enjoyed it. I'd also like to mention that your um, the the quavering intensity and the shortness of breath in the mother's last words at the start of the story was really well portrayed. I thought Paul's like, straight I was straight in. Yeah, I was immediately hooked by the way that you that you performed your story. Um, Thank you very much. So yeah, that's that was that was a really strong showing. Thank you. Thank you. Oh right, okay, Nick, don't fuck it up. <laughs> oh, I will. <laughs> uh, I better tell I'll, a story. <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to insert me saying something more supportive into the final review. Never. Never. <laughs> Beep, beep, bingle, beep. We're just barging in a moment to tell you about something cool. 200,000 book titles are published every year in the UK. Just 17% of these are lucky enough to get a decent marketing budget and make it to the bestsellers list. Among the other 83% are many amazing books and authors that remain undiscovered. Shockingly, it's estimated that 70 million of these books are destroyed each year in the UK alone. A box of stories wants to change that. By scanning thousands of titles and using real reader recommendations, their algorithm saves these brilliant books from being lost forever by curating a box of four surprise books. You could even pick the genre of the box, like historical fiction or crime. Discovering new work has never been easier or more exciting, and a box of stories has saved more than 100,000 books already. To receive £4 off of your first box, use the code TINY when you check out at www.aboxofstories.com. That's TINY, all in lowercase, at www.aboxofstories.com. Now let's get back to our stories. Beep, bangle, beep, beep! With a sigh of exasperation, Albert Frankenstein let his finger come to rest on the last ingredient on the list. Distilled electricity from yonder heavens. He ran a hand over his neatly trimmed beard and plonked the heavy, leather-bound tome onto the metal workbench. His fingers rubbed into the corners of his eyes as though they intended to make furrows into his brain and let the tension of the last few months' work pour out. Albert was a sixth-generation member of the family business. The lucrative, and secretive, and possibly even some other tivs, world of flesh golem crafting. <laughs> it had come a very long way since his great-great-great-grandfather, Victor, had first mastered the recipe for creating human life. That had gone rather badly, by all records. Although things were different now, Flesh Golem business was remarkably lucrative, while the pitchfork and firebrand trades had vanished into near nothingness. That same delightful list of do's and don'ts, where's and why for's had worked its way through every generation of Frankenstein, usually in order to allow the previous owner to flee whatever laboratory he'd been crafting away in and hide in one of the more forgiving corners of the earth. Now it had at the age of 23, fallen to Albert to take over the craft. Necromancy, some called it, though in truth that was a dreadful misnomer. There was nothing magical about what they were doing, 
They were merely applying science in a manner that several conventions, moral codes, and monotheistic cults deemed incorrect. Distilled electricity. Albert let the words tumble from his lips. From yonder heavens, yes, sir. Albert jumped as a wave of goosebumps crawled across his flesh. Matthew Igor, ninth generation by all accounts, was from a long line of folk built to be assistants. He, like his forebears, possessed an incredible knack for sliding into a room silently and standing, curved-backed and watery-eyed, waiting for their moment to be unsettling. Igor slid a cup of steaming coffee onto the workbench, sending a few loose bits of some poor git flopping off the table. Although they didn't mind, on account of being dead. It means lightning, sir. Of course. How does one distill lightning? How does one capture lightning in order to distill it? How was Albert going to manage all of this in a two-up-two-down in Surrey? Bollocks, he muttered. No, no, I'm pretty sure it's lightning, sir. <laughs> we did those a few weeks ago. This sort of misunderstanding was all too common when dealing with an eagle. Albert's father had often complained about it. They were extremely literal. A dangerous mindset when coupled with their unusual strength likely caused by their wide frames and tightly coiled spines. Yes, yes, of course, Igor. Albert pulled his lab coat straight and ran his fingers again over the list of ingredients. With each, he glanced up at their... Child. Mind of man, not egged with pox. Bellows from within the breast. A beauteous face. Blood. Disappointing one, that, although the recipe could be found on page 17. His grandfather's notes provided an alternative, using iron brew and an armadillo that you wouldn't miss. A heart, not joiner to God. Organs, miscellaneous. Again, there was a clarification later on. However, an early situation that he and Igor were laughingly referring to as the awful incident had caused him to actually go ahead and read the whole thing. That which maketh man, and finally, this distilled electricity nonsense. Frankly, the rest of the ingredients had been easy to come by. Igor had his own family secrets, which primarily involved saying things like, Look over there! and thumping someone with the flat bit of your shovel. These collected parts were now stitched together and resting unmoving on the table. If Albert had been so inclined, he would have called the thing beautiful. It was gruesome, too, in truth, but it had a certain elegance. The marble whiteness of the skin, drained as it was of blood, and slender, perfect features laid so calmly. It was a sight to behold. This was all down to customer specifications, of course. When an oligarch comes a-knockin' looking for a flesh golem, you offer a drink, take specifications on what they need it to be able to do. The words warrior and cuckold seem to come up in surprisingly similar measure at this stage. And then you take their enormous bag of money and tell them to come back in six weeks. Once you're a decade or so in, you do this, palm the book off on the next male cousin, nephew or son available, and you bugger off to Guadalajara. Right then, eagle, chum. How do we do this? Albert thought about trying to hook the creation up to his Ford Capri and turn it over a few times. Though if that worked, it would have made it into the dozens of family scribblings by now. Well, sir, uh, tradition dictates I climb onto the roof, 
in some kind of storm, and then we wait for the inevitable to happen. This was said with an unnerving amount of calm for a man describing how he would be gently broiled by a lightning strike. It was a hell of an ask, if Albert was really honest with himself. He'd rather come to like Matt in the months they worked together. He called him Igor because, you know, that's the way it's supposed to be, sir. But he did feel a tad awful for the chap. He wasn't actually paying him anything. Again, at the little man's insistence. Another involuntary shudder filled Albert's back with a sweat dappling. The little fellow clearly enjoyed his work. At this point is an excellent time to note that Igors, as they prefer to be known, are in fact paid a fixed fee by the Council of Henchfolk. If you ever get the chance to attend the Hench Ball, go for it. The gathering of so many Igors, bounty hunters, masked nameless soldiers and background lurkers, a species all unto themselves, is always absolutely wild. Although not a lot happens, as no one really knows how to be in charge. Albert nodded sagely. Igor nodded Rosemary Lee. The writer of that joke was thrown off a rooftop. <laughs> Very well. I'm sure, as is always the case, there will be a well-timed storm tonight. We'd best get you on the roof. That night, Albert listened to the rumbles of thunder around Chiddingfold with bated breath. His garage ceiling, some 14 feet above his secret lab, hid from him the truth of the situation. He spoke into his two-way radio, impatience getting the best of him. Anything yet, Igor? The sound of lashing rain and whipping wind almost choked the reply. I'm afraid not, sir. I've not even got a little crispy yet. Bugger. They were nearly at bedtime, and they'd achieved nothing. Then, as expected by anyone who's done this sort of thing before, Several exciting, dangerous, and very silly things happened all at once. The clock struck twelve midnight. The lightning struck the enormous metal pole in Igor's hands. The current going through Igor meant he struck an F above high C, completely without meaning to. And the first thought struck the brain of the violently electrified flesh golem. That thought was, bloody hell, that's painful. Remembering his part, Albert threw his arms in the air and began the traditional chant. It's alive! Alive! A distinct lack of wind led him to grab the tails of his own lab coat and flap them furiously. With a lurch, his creation sat bolt upright and turned to look at him. Here, this isn't regulation. Your garage space isn't to be used for commercial purposes. And furthermore, you will have seen the agreement posted quite clearly on the village hall that subterranean excavation is only allowed with council permission. Oh no. This was a nightmare. He knew he should have asked Igor, whose brain was being plonked into the golem, but he'd gone and trusted the silly sod. The recognisable voice of Jeremy Blandwell of the Neighbourhood Preservation and Garden Judgment Society was ringing from his creation. Also, we have yet to see an arrangement from yourself vis-a-vis -vis the autumnal wreath that we did say was required on all properties in the parish newsletter. With a panicked point, Albert yelled, Look over there! And remembering his assistant's advice, wanged the thing on the noggin as hard as he could. With a thigh, it sudded back on the table. The smell of ozone filled the room as a slightly smoking and crisp Igor edged in and Albert began to pull on his comically long rubber gloves. 
Quite the shame, Igor. Quite the shame. Should we try again? With a smile and a nod, Igor took the shovel from his master. Sir, it would be my pleasure. Absolutely hilarious. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> I thought that was tremendous. Really, really funny and really, really well performed. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> the voices were amazing. Especially just, Igor's, that was great. So, yeah, that the way that you can just switch in and out of that is tremendous. I gotta tell you, man, I'm so happy you laughed at that stupid herb <laughs> joke. Oh, <fucking> <laughs> Rose merrily, like. Oh yeah, like... I laughed so many times. I was on mute, so it's like, okay, well at least he wants to clean that up later. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was good, but I love Frankenstein. I love yeah, like yeah, Victorian yeah. anything. So like, I don't know. This was like a perfect storm of things that I love. So I, I genuinely loved. The story so much. Really glad. So you did a great job. Wrote, in the same way that I wrote down, uh, cannibal? Question <laughs> mark. Uh, very early on, I wrote down, "Where is Igor?" <laughs> oh, <laughs> Look my. at that. Oh, excellent! So many good jokes. Uh, the uh, and many other tivs right at the start. That one really got me. I'm glad. The uh, him, him saying bollocks. No, I don't think so, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Stunning. You also managed to get a little Lord of the Rings reference in there with your Witherfors and Wyfors. Oh, yeah, yeah, where twos and Witherfors. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, and uh, there's always there always seems to be something that links our stories, and you went for a two up, two down as well. Yes, and when you were both reading he said oh it's very sad we've both gone for dead people i thought oh it's gonna get awkward when i get to reanimating corpses at the end (laughs) (laughs) no not at all and i will explain that a little further when you ask me the question about crying later (laughs) oh (laughs) well stay tuned uh Yes, it was during the ritual when I realised that she was coming back to life and i just wept uncontrollably i had to put the book of psalms down (laughs) oh that yeah, that I mean, there's almost not much more to say about that. It was just so good and so funny. It did it did exactly exactly what I think you set out to do with it. it was really yeah, the characterization awesome. was awesome. Yeah, both in the writing and in the voices. I could I could definitely read a whole book of that kind of writing, for sure. And in, yeah, and yeah, it's just great. I said a lot of this really leaning into this is the first time I've really lent into that part of my sense of humor and it's cropped up a little bit, but it's you saying, I do actually enjoy that. That made me think I'm going to do one and I'm going to go all out on my manageable sanity levels. We'll call it that. I think that's a, a reasonable way of saying it. It is, it is very much like practice turned up to 11. The, the kind of humor that you, that you go for, I think. You can tell when it's meant to be a, a note at the bottom of the page, can't you? When I'm, re- when I'm reading. <laughs> the last you, you can hear the little one. <laughs> oh, crikey. Well, that was that was three, three, certainly three stories. And I really enjoyed both of yours for very different reasons. But oh. let's, um, let's proceed into the uh, interview because um, I'm very excited to uh, hear your answers, Tanya. All right. Let's begin I'm the grilling. ready to be interrogated. <laughs> yes. I'm going okay. to turn the lamp in your eyes now. Yeah, turn on the lamp. I'll get the, the cloth and the water bottle. Oh, okay. oh water bottle. <laughs> okay. Nice. 
<laughs> it's it's look, we've gone dark. It's happening. This is the episode, gang. The gang get cancelled. <laughs> Tanya. I'm gonna say yes. that again in case I decide to edit that out. Tanya, what are you reading at the moment? Oh, um, well, I am a juror for the Shirley Jackson Awards, so I'm reading a ton of short story submissions from that. I don't have any time right now to read anything for pleasure, even though like some of the, like a lot of the stories actually are really good um, and that they're pleasurable to read. It's just I don't choose to read them. Um, yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's a lot of them are really good. And I mean, it's all horror. So, of course, like I'm really yeah. happy about that but yeah a lot of short stories and um novelettes what's the jura process like um well people send us and they can either mail it or you know in the case of short stories especially that are only published online um they send us a link to it um and there's a big spreadsheet a master spreadsheet that has all of the submissions um and there are four different jurors and different jurors are responsible for different things. So I do short stories and novelettes and um, anthologies. And then there's someone else that does short stories, novellas, and collections. And then there are a couple of people that do novels and novellas. So it's kind of divided amongst us all, but there is overlap. So there's not just one person reading yeah. each of the stories or submissions. How many do you think you'll end up reading over the course of this? Um... I looked at the spreadsheet last night and there's 200 and I want to say 12 submissions. Crikey. Yeah, it's a lot of reading. <laughs> a lot of reading. That is, that is a I feel lot, like that but... semen truck was loud. <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, um, what's the word count uh, that it has to be between to fit into? Your... Um, less than 7,500 words, I think, for the short stories. But then, you know, I read the um, anthologies as well. So that's an entire book of short stories. And each of those um, are gen generally less than 7,500 words as well. But I have to read the entire book. <sighs> well, I don't have to read the entire book. Let me put it this way. You know, when you're a juror and you've got 200 and something submissions to read, you read the first little bit of a story, and if you know it's not going to be a winner, you can put it down and move on. I'm going to say, there's got to be a few that you go, mm, that'll yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's the same process that I use for the podcast when people submit stories to me. You know, I'll, I'll read the first, usually two to three paragraphs, depending on how long they are. It's usually about half a page to a page that, um, that I'll read. And, you know, by, by that point, I know if this is going to be a contender or not. You know, there, there are some really obvious things that stand out. You know, if something's not polished, then I'm not going to put myself through hell by reading <laughs> something that someone didn't bother to proofread, right? Mm -hmm. If they can't bother to proofread, I'm not going to spend my time um, considering their work. Um, yeah. You know, and then there are some stories that just open up and you know that it's just, it doesn't have the right atmosphere. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that, it's bad. It's just that it's not the right atmosphere for what I seek to do with the podcast. And so, yeah. you know, I know, okay, this one is not the one either. So we've had reading for work, but um, let's flip it over and say, what's the best book you ever read? Oh, God, that's a really good question. Honestly, I think it, like, it changes with my mood. <laughs> Um, but I would say that right now, and this is going to sound kind of like a cop-out answer, but, um, We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson, um, is probably one of my favorite novels. It's really probably like a novella. It's 
a little bit shorter than um, what about novel. this speaks to you so strongly um i don't know like i just i really love quiet horror and it's it's very quiet and you're not necessarily sure if you can trust the narrator like is she really crazy you know has she killed people like what's really going on here um is it her sister that's the nefarious one or are they just like really eccentric sisters <laughs> you know it's mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to figure out the entire time, like, who you can trust and who you can't trust. And um, I really enjoy psychological thrillers. And I wouldn't necessarily say that that particular book is a thriller, but it's very psychological in nature. And I enjoy reads like that. Do you think that uh, that book in particular has influenced your own writing style? I would say so. Um, I mean, I think everything I've ever read, whether it was good or bad, has influenced me in some way. You know, sometimes I'll read something and I'll be like, I'm never doing that in anything that I write, <laughs> you know. Um, and then sometimes I'll read something. I'm like, oh, that's a really great way to you know, explain something. Or I really like how they you know, space these words out for better pacing and, and things like that. So um, I'm influenced by everything that I read, watch, listen to. But I'm probably most influenced by The Twilight Zone. I've been watching that since I was a little kid on Nick at Night. I think it was on Nick at Night. It might have been on like Turner Classic Movies or something. I don't remember. I was little. Um, but, you know, they played reruns of The Twilight Zone and like I fell in love with it right away. And, you know, it's something that I watch all the time, especially like if I'm sick, I'll turn on The Twilight Zone and just mm, yeah. lie in bed and, <laughs> you know, watch The Twilight Zone. Um, it's kind of comforting to me in a way. Well, an excellent way to bring about your own fever dreams as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Twilight Zone with some NyQuil. I've come up with some <laughs> interesting story ideas. And then I write them down when I wake up, but then I can't read my writing. So half of them are lost because I have terrible handwriting and, you know, NyQuil fever dreams. You don't remember them if you don't write them down. So I've probably got some really great ideas that I just can't decipher. <laughs> Yeah, you've got to mix it with an upper as well. You've got to get, you've got to, you know, you've got to crack open, crack open a Lemsip capsule and just bang a line of that. Right. Okay, I was thinking like an espresso or something. Yeah, well, <laughs> so an Iquil. <laughs> mix it together. I'm sure, like you could make, you know, like make it like an alcoholic beverage kind of. You know, your Nyquil is your alcohol. <laughs> this is my dream tea. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, that would be awful. Nyquil and coffee, like, ugh. <laughs> So you did allude to it slightly before. What's the worst book you've ever read? Let me think about that. That's a really good question because I try to scrub them from my mind. <laughs> so it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to say this person wrote this book and it was terrible. Yeah. But, you know, it can be a book that it just didn't work for you or there was some yeah. big literary turnoff. Well, okay. So I also review books for publishers weekly. I do YA, uh, horror and romance. And I was reading this one romance novel that I feel like it was probably written by a dude because it had those, you know, like classic descriptions of female breasts. <laughs> where, they're, where they're always painfully, apparently all women are always painfully aware of their own nipples. Right. Yes. That, that kind of yes. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's breasts are very pert and, you yeah, know, I mean, just so much attention to descriptions of like how she walked and how she talked and all of it was very sultry and sexy. And Was, was this written by George Martin by any chance? <laughs> was, was there mention of Milky Dugs? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, is it was a, it was a female pseudonym at least that wrote it, but the, the writing style was very much like I, don't think I've ever read a woman that would write women that way. 
So I'm, you know, 99.9% sure that it was a pseudonym and it was a male that was writing it, but it was just, it was so awful. And, you know, I tried not to send books back to my editor at Publishers Weekly and say, like, I can't read this. It's, you know, it's terrible. You know, I try, even if I don't like it, you know, I'll stick, stick with it and read it. And then, you know, in the review, I'll, you know, I try not to rip things to shreds because they're authors and they have feelings. And, you know, just because I didn't like it doesn't mean someone else won't like it. Um, but, you know, I am honest about I felt like it had these problems and these are the things that I didn't like about it. These are the things I think it did well kind of thing. But that one, I mean, I read maybe 20 pages. I was just, I can't do this. I cannot. <laughs> There's nothing so far that I could say about this book that is redeeming in any sort of way about it. You know, there there wasn't anything happening with the plot at that point, it was just, you know, her going about her daily life and, you know, how her boobs looked. <laughs> she did it, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, and I'm oversimplifying, obviously, but, you know, it was, it was very much just, I guess, insight into some male minds about how they view women walking down the street. I don't know. It was just, it was super awkward to read. It's, it's definitely something that, like, because we, we laughed about it because it's a trope, isn't it? Like, it's something yeah. That, yeah. that we're aware of um in especially in stuff like um i would say fantasy literature um this idea of like yeah uh, a woman sort of self-describing as sultry and yeah. this, this kind of thing like it, it, yeah possibly being it's because it's become such a trope hopefully it's being ironed out like um uh yeah hopefully yeah yeah i hope so <laughs> i hope i don't get assigned another book like that <laughs> I mean, I I was uh, it's one of the first because I did um I did some creative writing modules at uni, and one of the very first things I wrote involved a scene that exactly that happened in, and it's, but I was you know eighteen or whatever, and <laughs> uh, and ever since every time someone's brought it up I've, I've winced a little bit, but you've got to learn from your mistakes and you've got to grow from it. Um, Absolutely. And I I haven't done it since I don't think. Unless it I've does describe me like that though. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Miko is always aware of his own nipples, so I am <laughs> painfully. So. I, use them, <laughs> I use them like a compass. <laughs> He's got to lie down. Do, do share, time. do share how you do that, because that's a very useful. Point. Well, the <laughs> the third one always points magnetic north. So. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. I don't have a third one. I meant to look into that. <laughs> when, it's, when it's cold, they turn into sundials. <laughs> you got to. <laughs> so we've established that. Um, that's that's a big um that's a big sort of uh, turn off when you're reading reading a book and, and uh, that you know you just can't jive with that at all is when when we think about um you know best books worst books that leads us inevitably on to the characters inside those books who is your favorite literary character from fiction <gasps> dracula Straight up, nice. Straight the count, up. Himself. <laughs> yeah. the count himself. Yeah, yeah. I find him infinitely interesting, and I love that you know it's public domain, so people can write whatever they want with that character. And I, I think that's a big part of the reason that I like him so much is I see all of this this body of work that's out there, the way that people have reimagined him, but also stay true to him as well, and. I just, I just think there's so much that you can do with him, so much people have done with him, because he's got such depth as a character to begin with, and he's so unusual and mysterious. 
yeah, definitely Dracula. Yeah. It's interesting that so they, they say so part of the charm of the character comes from the way that he can be written about in the public. In the yeah. Public. yeah. Okay, that's that's a that's a really interesting answer to that. I think. Um, do you enjoy the source material? I do. I do. It's been a long time since I read Dracula. I actually have it on my bookshelf behind me. And I've been wanting to read it. It's probably going to be one of the first things I read after I finish reading the stuff for the Shirley Jackson Awards. Almost like a reset. Because uh, I've been wanting to revisit it for a while. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. Oh. Uh, yeah, Dracula is a, is a is an immense figure, isn't it? And we've seen it, as you said, like, because it's um, free to use, it gets... Yeah bandied about a lot um does it is it painful when someone misuses the character uh, you know i don't think i've ever watched or read something where i felt like someone misused the character even uh gary oldman as dracula with his hair which one is that one um i think it's i think the full title is just bram stoker's dracula Oh, oh God! I haven't seen that in like twenty-something years. I don't remember disliking it. It's uh, well, it's possibly just a, an aesthetic thing, but he has this ridiculous big hairdo. Oh yeah, the yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just I don't know. Like I didn't, I don't pay so much attention to the characters' looks. I guess mm. it's more about their actions for me. Like I mean, because there's a whole bunch of times like I've watched something and been like, that is a or wardrobe choice <laughs> but you know i mean especially like as a woman you know you're watching you know these women fight in basically bikinis <laughs> it's like they would never do that you know so i don't know i guess like as a woman i got used to kind of putting wardrobe and appearance to the side. things aside and just paying attention to the character because there's so much ridiculousness out there when it comes to the way women are dressed and done up that you kind of have to ignore it to enjoy yeah. the story I think so far we're definitely seeing this theme um, for you, which is this this idea of this quiet horror that you spoke of earlier. Yeah. Um, because I think Dracula does also fit that a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, the the creeping know, dread. Yeah, it's a cre yeah the creeping mm -hmm. dread. There's certain rules that need to be obeyed and the interesting way that they can be subverted and played with. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So we're getting a good insight into the books you like, the characters you like. But mm -hmm. we do, we need to dig now into you, how you write, what you do. Tell us what makes you right. tick. So what is your process when it comes to actually writing? Oh, I do not have a process. <laughs> um, sometimes I will just sit down, like the story for, for this episode. I had an idea and, um, you know, I was packing up stuff to move. And, you know, I'm kind of like noodling around in my head, like what I want to do with the story and what I want, how I want to tell it. And usually I'll come up with the beginning in my head, um, not necessarily word for word, but I'll have a good idea of how I want to start it um, and just kind of think through a little bit where I want to go. Um, and then I'll figure out the end as I'm writing. Sometimes yeah. I will sit down with index cards or, you know, notebook paper or whatever um, and put out, you know, an outline that details the main beats of a story, especially if I'm doing like a screenplay um, of some sort. I really have to plan those out. Um, although even when I do an outline and plan it out, a lot of times what happens is I'll start writing and then something else will pop into my head. And then I'll write that. And then the rest of the stuff in the outline won't necessarily work. <laughs> and so then I'm kind of like finding my way in the dark again. Yeah. Um, 
that happens a lot. Um, there's been a couple of times that I've stuck with the outline and, you know, I've liked the story in the end, but I like the things that I write as a pantser better than the ones that I write as a plotter. And it's not even just like the writing, like I enjoy the writing process more when I'm pantsing um, versus writing something that's already been plotted out. But just the way that I feel about the story after I'm done, most, most of the stories that I write, I hate them. <laughs> you know, when I finish them, I'm like, oh, this is yeah. terrible. Why am I doing this? Like, why does anyone want to read anything that I write <laughs> kind of thing? Um, but, um, but the story for this episode, when I finished it, I was like, sweet. Like, I actually really like the story. Um, there's been a couple that were on the podcast, Nightlight, um, that I wrote that I actually liked when I finished writing them. Um, but for the most part, when I write, I just, I just want to get something on the page and then I can yeah. come back and fix it later. Um, but there's been a few times that I've come up with something that I really liked and I just had to do really minor revisions. Um, oh, if, if it's helping you love yourself, you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> I would love to come back. This has been a lot of fun. The, it, it's particularly impressive to write horror like that, I think. Um, you know, horror, horror is a, I mean, I, I'm sort of preaching to the choir a little bit here, but, and, and feel free to disagree with me, but I, I, when I actually get a little bit intimidated about writing horror, because the plots are often so strong, um, and the, the structure of it is, it relies on withholding things from you at certain times and giving it to you later. Yeah. Um, that I, I, I often shy away from it because I'm, I'm very much a pantser. Um, and I'm not sure I could do that particularly well on the fly. So the fact that you wrote this story that we just had from you in that style is it is makes it even more impressive, I think. So that's very cool. Yeah, and I didn't know that I was going to have her be happy about it at the end. I just knew, okay, I was like, I need a twist. I'm just going to keep writing. <laughs> Maybe it'll come to me. <laughs> just imagining you writing an entire horror novel, getting to the end, writing the twist and being surprised by it. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised by a lot of stuff that I write. Sounds great. <laughs> um, I did write a novella, and I was surprised by the ending of that. Oh, wicked! Yeah, yeah that's so cool. I think I've I think I've mentioned it before on this um, this podcast, but um, Stephen King can't stand knowing how his book ends. Yeah, before he gets yeah. to, uh, because he wants to have fun and be surprised himself, and yeah, and all the rest. It's of it. a lot so, more fun to write yeah. it when you are finding the story yourself. You know. You know, having said that, some people do need to um, put it, you know, put it into blocks. You know what you're saying with the index yeah. cards and all that kind of thing, and still craft excellent stories that are beautifully written. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it all just depends on the person. You know, everybody's different. Everybody does things their own in their own way. And I think you know, some stories call for more thorough plotting, and some stories call for more panting. I think you know, they're the. It's not just about what you as a writer feel more comfortable with it's also about what you intend to do with the story and the best way to accomplish that so i'm actually quite interested just to do a follow-up question there if that's if we're okay with that one nico um go on then the this idea that um that you can identify which stories need to be plotted and which story needs to be pantsers do you have any insight for for the audience that, like which stories are which for you for you I think a thriller, you really have to go into it with a really good idea of what your beats are. You don't necessarily need like every single scene 
planned out, but you have to know, you know, what your characters are dealing with just because those stories are so plot driven that it's really hard to make something thrilling when you're trying to find your way <laughs> through that story. And I mean, that, that's not to say that you can't sit and write a scene as your outline, because that's something that I do sometimes too, is, you know, I'll sit with like an index card and I won't write like full sentences, but I will write out a scene, you know, so it won't just be like, you know, lady goes to the police station or, you know, whatever the case is. It'll be, you know, she walks in, she talks to somebody, they don't believe her. Um, she goes and finds someone else to talk to because the first person was a misogynist and, you know, it was a woman that she finds and she talks to the woman and, you know, she finds the woman really creepy. And so she leaves the police station, you know, that kind of thing. Mm, yeah. So, you know, I'm not writing out the entire scene, but, you know, I'm very much describing exactly what happens yeah. in that scene. And I think, you know, when you're writing a thriller or something that's really um, plot heavy, that it's, you know, especially as you're like dropping clues, mysteries are another one because you kind of got to drop clues and you got to figure out which clues you want to drop and where. I think stories like that can benefit from planning ahead of time. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Definitely. Shall I ask another? Let's ask uh, another. Yeah, yeah. I, I think <laughs> uh, I think I, I always enjoy it when you ask this one. <laughs> I like uh, attending to an audience member for a moment. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Wait, it depends which one you think I'm going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, so I was going to ask. We, we've spoken about uh, Dracula hitting the screen a little bit already. But if you could turn any book into another medium, so that could be a video game, a t-shirt, a pair of high-top shoes, a fajita, anything, what book would you adapt to what medium and why? Um, Fledgling by Octavia Butler, hands down. It should be a movie. Um, I know that they're doing Kindred finally. Kindred used to be my go-to if someone ever asked me that question because it's a shame that Kindred isn't a movie yet. Um, but they're working on that one. So now I'm going to say Fledgling. And I think that one's going to be more of a struggle um, for the folks who don't know what that one's about. It's about a child vampire. Um, and we you know, she's seen this coming. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Good foreshadowing on my part, you know, earlier, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's about a child vampire, but, um, she has sex with, you know, multiple people, um, as, you know, part of what she needs as a vampire. So, you know, it's, it's very complicated in that way because she's old, right? Like she's a vampire, you know, yeah. she's older than I am, but she has the appearance of a child. And so it's really disturbing, um, to read that book. But I think because, you know, it kind of tiptoes around pedophilia a lot that it would be really difficult to get Hollywood to green light anything like that. So I would settle for it being a graphic novel. I was going to say, we, we <laughs> normally, you know, when we talk about movies and TV on here, we would normally then say, who's your fantasy cast? But I don't yes. feel like I can say, who do you want to see as a pedophile? <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would feel comfortable answering that question. Is there and like which child would you want to use? Like it just, yeah, but, yeah. I don't know that I'd want to answer that question. I feel like Rapid you can't win answering that question. 
Are there any uh, artists that jump out at you for if you're going to graphic novel? Oh yeah, um, John Jennings. He actually did the graphic novel adaptation of Kindred, and it's okay. freaking amazing. Um, so I'm hoping that he gets to do something with fledgling. We'll reach out. Let's do it. Team up. Yeah. You can say no to one <laughs> podcast. You can't say no to two. That's right. That's it's the law. When did you last cry reading? Oh, um, so in February, I was doing a conference. Um, and I mentioned earlier that my cousin died at the beginning of February. Yeah. And um, I was reading an excerpt from my novella. Now, my novella is a zombie novel, but not like the arg brains kind of zombie. It's more like the zombies of Haitian uh, voodoo lore, yes. where someone raises someone from the dead and controls them, basically. Um, and ultimately it's a story about my dad's death, um, because he had a car accident, he had a brain bleed, had surgery, um, was doing fine after the surgery, but then he started to have seizures, which racked his brain and, um, he was awake, but not really conscious of what was happening around him, you know, so his eyes were open, but you know, there was nobody home basically. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that really worried me a lot um as he was dying was wondering if he was aware of what was happening to him and if he was in pain if he was suffering if you know he was angry that he was trapped in his body and couldn't do the things that he wanted to do because he was always you know he never sat still he was always one of those people that was tinkering and you know i mean if, the only time he sat still was football sundays that was it <laughs> you know if it, that was the only time he was in his chair um so, you know, for him, especially being stuck in a bed and not being able to do anything about it would have been torture. So, you know, I, I worried a lot about that. And I guess probably about a year after he died, I started writing the novella. And I didn't realize at the time what I was writing about. Um, and about halfway through, I realized that I was processing my feelings around that. And oh, I put God. it in a drawer. <laughs> and I was like, nope. <laughs> I'm not doing this. This is not happening. I can't deal with this right now. Um, so I put it away. And then um, for some foolish reason, the pandemic happened and, you know, I'm working on the pod podcast and I'm like, well, you know, I have time to work on this, this novella that I was writing. I might as well finish that. And so I picked it back up um, to finish it. And uh, it was published December of 2020. Um but I mean, it was it was very, um, very difficult for me to write. There were a lot of tears while I was writing it. Um, and I finished it right around the time that, you know, he was in the hospital and dying and all of that. And I have PTSD from that whole <clears throat> process, you know, of watching him die and all of that. So, you know, it was like uniquely painful yeah. um, in a way. And, you know, I cried while writing it and I'd had a couple of readings since I had finished writing it and I was just fine, you know, because I've been over the words so many times that they didn't necessarily hold the same meaning anymore. Um, but like, like on the heels of my cousin's death, it was really hard for me to read. And, you know, I teared up a few times and I don't know if the audience noticed, like it, I, I controlled it pretty well. But, you know, immediately after I was done, like I just broke down and sobbed for like 30 minutes. Um, you know, because of that fresh grief and then bringing up the grief from my dad's death and, and all of that. So yeah, I was reading my own work, which I feel like is, I don't know, I feel like that might be kind of a conceited answer. Um, but, but it's true. That's the last time I cried while reading something. 
considering what I said earlier, I, I'm going to say from my perspective, it's not conceited. Uh, <laughs> it's also um, incredibly emotionally raw, which yeah. is about as far from conceit as you can get. Yes, I'd say. that's very true. Um, that's true. That's, that's incredibly intense. Ooh. It definitely was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm much better oh. now. Like I can read it. I've read it since then. And I have a reading next week for it. And, you know, now that I'm, you know, a couple months separated from my cousin's death, like I can read it and not, you know, break down anymore. But, um, but yeah, I had a few readings scheduled for the month of February and I was like, Oh my God, I'm gonna have to do this three times. <laughs> yeah. and it, it was really difficult to get through say, it. The way that you, the way that you're comfortable talking about this kind of stuff with us is um, it's, it's actually really uplifting. I'm finding it very, uh, a very positive experience just like hearing how open and how comfortable you are talking through your your very intense experiences of the last two years or so well, thank um, you and how it ties thank into you. your writing so thank you for that therapy therapy, <laughs> podcast therapy. yes but now like like the blind pharaoh being shown his future pyramid i'm going to fail to read the room <laughs> god that was bad okay here we go <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm so dumb i love my life <laughs> like, here, here we are it's happening um tonya can you tell me one fact about yourself that's completely uninteresting oh uninteresting <sighs> see this is well, your I downfall think... you've been really interesting so far <laughs> <laughs> I know, like, I'm usually good at interesting facts. I'm trying to think of something that's really uninteresting. Um, I have brown eyes. How's that? That's that's pretty, yeah, that's... Pretty, pretty uninteresting. But, but he's a bit of a master, so let him work for a moment. So, were both of your parents brown-eyed? That's my first question. And if the answer is no, that we may have to ask about some other people, male man, perhaps. <laughs> No, um, I'm actually mixed. My dad was black and my mom's white. Okay. Um, so my dad had brown eyes, but my mom has gray eyes. Oh, gray, eyes. gray eyes is cool. Mm-hmm. See, we're unlocking the mysteries here. Yeah. This is what we do. <laughs> so, got the dominant dominant brown eye, which sounds that way. That sounds bad. <laughs> Not the dominant brown eye. You you obviously have a recessive gray eye. Gene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you ever wish you could swap? Would you rather have grey eyes or brown eyes, do you think? You know, um, for the first 20-something years of my life, I wished that I had, like, grey eyes or green eyes or hazel eyes or something other than brown. I thought brown was stupid and boring. Um, and then my son was born, and my son has brown eyes. And, you know, I, the first time I looked into his eyes, I was like, wow, brown eyes are really beautiful. And so I've come to appreciate them. I mean, I wouldn't change them anymore. The sun goes, my brown-eyed girl, for a reason. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> you coming around to it with the birth of your son, that's lovely. Um, so we know that um you obviously do a lot of um reading professionally and also you you write, perform, and uh are a creator of, of another podcast. But have you got any upcoming work that you'd um you'd like to talk about? Yeah, um, so I'm working on an audio drama that is, I call it, a cross between Lovecraft Country and True Blood. And Ooh, it's about <laughs> it's about this town that suffers a series of unnatural disasters. And I say unnatural because there's like earthquakes, but there's no fault line nearby, that type of thing. Um, and, you know, of course, it's because someone was messing with something that they shouldn't and they opened a mouth to hell, basically. 
Um, and there's only a couple of people in town who actually know what's going on because they know what sits under this town. And so they're kind of charged with protecting the town as best they can. But, you know, it's one of those things, you know, this is, you know, modern times. People aren't going to believe that there's, you know, a hell mouth underneath your town kind of thing. So they have to kind of do it on the low. Um, and the main character is named after my aunt who passed away a year before my father did. Um, so it's, it's very much, and, and it's about hoodoo as well. And I grew up with hoodoo, but I didn't know that's what it was. I thought it was just superstition until I started to research it. Um, and then I realized like all this weird stuff that my grandmother and my father did was hoodoo. Um, and so that's how the people in the town are fighting this demonic force that's rising. Sounds that cool as fuck. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And I'm trying to turn it into um, a TV pilot as well. I've got a manager and he's like, take that audio drama and write a TV pilot for it. And so we're trying to shop that oh, around. So we'll see if I end up making it an audio drama or if it ends up being a TV show. If you need a chubby white man, give me a call. You know where I'm at. <laughs> I got you. I got you. <laughs> because there aren't enough of those about it. There are so few of us. <laughs> you know, if, if Jack Black's not available... <laughs> <laughs> oh my like, god i would love jack black to be in one of my shows honestly fuck! <laughs> that'd be a dream co- who says i don't need two chubby white men though? society <laughs> history <laughs> okay that's fair well no no tenacious d had kyle gas and that's it's gas true. i think yeah the rage cage is no mere man <laughs> entirely oh wow um i so We've we've spoken about it a couple of times and it's sort of come up, but um, do you fancy telling us a bit more about the your podcast that you do because it's it, it is fascinating. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, so for people who don't listen to it, it's called Nightlight. Um, it's a horror podcast that features creepy tales written and performed by Black creatives from all over the world. Um, and basically, it, it's just that people Black people send me stories that they write, um, and I select the best ones and I send it to a Black narrator to read. Um, they read it. Um, I layer sound effects and put atmospheric music behind it. Mm. Um, so it's kind of like a cross between an audio drama and a narrated story. Um, and I did that because I really wanted to do an audio drama, but I didn't have money to do an audio drama because paying multiple actors can cost a lot of money. Paying an editor to put together an audio drama costs a lot more money than a narrated story. So I kind of compromised with um, a narrated drama is uh, what I call it. And I started it June 19th of 2018. So Juneteenth, for those of you who aren't American or Southern, I don't even know if um, people from the North know what Juneteenth is, but it's um, a celebration of the liberation of slaves. Um, In the South, that's when word got to Galveston, Texas, that slaves were freed. Um, So I started it officially on that day. The first episode, I think, was like the 26th of June or something like that. Um, But yeah, so it's... um, it's been a wild ride. It's been a lot of fun. I've met some really cool writers, really cool narrators. Um, I found some amazing stories that I absolutely loved. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun, and I hope to continue to do it for a really long time. Well, I, I hope it keeps going as well as it uh, as it has been because it's a brilliant idea. And uh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely excellent. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to uh, make people aware of? Plug anything like that? Oh, I realized that earlier I did not say the name of my novella. Um, it's called ah, Risen. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 
Um, it's called Risen. It's apparently really hard to find on Amazon. If, even if you search for my name in Risen, like it doesn't always pop up, which right. is odd. Um, so if you go to um, rebrand.ly slash get Risen, you can get it that way. We will um, we'll also be... definitely tweet it. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. We'll be, Thank we'll you. Putting it out with this with this uh, with this episode. Thank you very much. So speaking of retweeting it or tweeting it, or uh, <laughs> I'm bad at Twitter. Can you tell? Where can people find you online? Um, I'm at Mystifying on Twitter and Instagram. That's M I S S D E F Y I N G. Excellent. Well, I've got to say, you've been a phenomenal guest, and it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. I've loved chatting with you guys. This has been great. I love it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, definitely. If you'd, uh, if you'd like to come back another time, feel free. Absolutely. I'd love to come back around Halloween because I can plan ahead. Oh, oh, you want to do, oh, Halloween. Oh, we're, yeah, that's on. <laughs> <laughs> I might even, I might even uh, get over my fear of writing fear, fear inducing stories. There you, you go. You never know. Uh, there you but, go. Uh, thank you. And uh, we'll see you again. Thank you all for joining us on this episode of The Tiny Bookcase. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on your chosen service so that you don't miss out on future episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny, where you can talk to us directly and even suggest prompts for upcoming stories. If you're not a tweeter, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Just search for The Tiny Bookcase. Now, if you want to support the podcast, and we'd really appreciate it if you did, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash the tiny bookcase. And then you can be just as special as these story seekers. Do we thank them? I think so. Well, then it's a huge thank you to the legendary Matthew McLaren and the absolutely epic Scott Byrne for their support. Thank you for listening. Catch you next week. week. <laughs> <laughs> Make it slimy. <laughs> Make it slimy, Nick. <laughs>